0: Malcolm Honline is on the road. Uh, He is uh, heading to a a very uh, prominent ceremony, which we'll mention in a moment. And he is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update this time every Friday. Mr. Honline, or should I say, Dr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, you can call me anything you like, but
1: (laughs) late for supper.
0: This is the third time that you're receiving an honorary doctorate. The most I've done, Malcolm, is gotten greeted at some minor league baseball Jewish heritage night. You got to give me advice. How do I get one of these universities to give me an honorary doctorate?
1: <laughs> you have to be on the other side of the microphone in order to get it.
0: <laughs> That's what it is. I never thought of it that way. Anyway, so one of the
1: honorees, this is at Temple University, uh, is Nagandi, who is a uh, broadcaster. ESPN. He was a graduate of Temple University also, and uh I don't know. They say that more than ten thousand people come to this thing to to participate. So I'm going to check how many are JM and AM listeners.
0: Yeah, I hope a lot of them. But I'll tell you one thing that that ESPN guy's got a lot better publicity machine than I do. I'll tell you that much. I'm I'm so desperate, Malcolm. I'm thinking of hiring Pamela Geller for a little publicity. What do you think? that's that's it could,
1: it could be very little.
0: Yeah, well, it could be very beneficial. She certainly knows how to play the media. you could tell I could tell you that much and we'll discuss that and much more coming up. What's your reaction to the re-election of David Cameron in the United Kingdom?
1: It's uh, very interesting because it went against all the predictions. sort of uh, paralleled, in a sense the elections in Israel. Uh, I think it's certainly a more positive outcome, uh, given the, some of the proclivities of the leader of the Labour Party, uh, Bill Evans. I think that uh, Cameron cross was the better choice and stability in Europe, um, and the fact that he won a resounding victory. As you remember, uh, he, there were people who were comparing the campaign all along to that of Netanyahu, uh,
0: right.
1: and uh, the outcome reflects that it's
0: it's really quite surprising well yeah but we could talk about uh the aftermath of the israel election which we will in a moment um because it it does not seem that uh now that the government has been formed and is going to be official that netanyahu is as strong as we might have suspected um how overwhelming was the victory by the way for cameron i mean to the point where his opposition where, where his opponent actually left the leadership role of his party at this point right
1: he did, and it's going to be interesting to see whether his brother, who was really a contender and was foreign minister and who in the interim has served as chairman of the International Rescue Committee based in New York, whether he will come back and try to reclaim a role. It is also, uh, it's going to cause a, a real shakeup, but the last that I saw, he was very close to at a, a majority, uh, meaning that he would not have, he could negotiate the position of strength. England generally has had coalition governments also. But there, you have the chance to win a majority in Israel. I think it's
0: impossible. All right. Uh, by the way, everybody, obviously Malcolm's on a cell phone. We only, only do this when it's absolutely necessary. He's traveling down to Temple University, and obviously we try to utilize a landline every week whenever possible. All right, so going to Israel for a moment, uh, it is pretty amazing that when the election was over, uh, and for the weeks after the election, and the Netanyahu victory was seen as a ra- relatively overwhelming one. Again, as you just said, you know, ev- everything is relative, especially in Israel, where it's impossible to win a real majority. Um, and yet the government is formed. It's only 61 seats. The media, both in the United States and Israel, I would think in other places as well, is painting it as a as a relatively weak government. How did Netanyahu get to this point where the the polls seem to indicate he'd be so strong, and now as he's being sworn in, he looks so weak?
1: It's a good question, and uh, it's you know one of the anomalies of Israeli politics is that uh, is that the process of negotiations tends to weaken because everybody thinks that they have him over a barrel, that they could all make demands, uh, Lieberman. You have to give him credit that he stands by his principle or had some sort of political strategy, perhaps thinking that he would be zero next time. He went down from as high as I think was a 13 or, uh, to, to five this time that, uh, by being in the opposition, he could recreate an identity and try to remobilize a base. But the, uh, the negotiation process is really a demeaning one for the prime minister. And having come out of this, uh, looking, as you said, very good, and ending up with the image, at least, of a weak government and a, a sector government, leaving open the foreign ministry position, which everyone believes he's holding, perhaps for a unity government, or to bring back other parties. And I think in the interim, he will try to peel off some of the members from uh, Lapid's party or from Lieberman's party, uh, offering them incentives to come and join so he can build up his majority uh because so a sixty-one vote means that every member holds him to over a barrel.
0: Right, and um, and they—I mean, I, this may be overstating the obvious—but anybody who would do that then would have to leave their party officially and become a member of We Could. I assume. Right, you, you can't stay in that party and. Yeah, become, it, it has happened
1: right. before, but you can switch. Uh, to the to the
0: coalition. So leaving Lieberman's values and principles aside for a moment, it may have been a brilliant strategy on his part to sort of separate himself from the Netanyahu government. He's stronger in this position, so to speak. And the other issue is, you know, you allude to how difficult the negotiation is and demeaning to the prime minister. Was it, and, and you could tell us if this was different decades ago or not. Did this always go on? Because it seems that the, the stakes are now so much higher that those who have control, and as you described, almost everybody does, those who have the prime minister over the over a barrel, it, it seems like the demands that they're making are so much more politically speaking than in past years.
1: Yes, because, you know, the the in the early years, it was everybody was uh, part of, uh, you know, the Labor Party had not so dominated the election process. And so it was so, uh, you know, the, the minority parties like Begin and everybody were relatively insignificant in, in compared to it. So the negotiations were different in later years. This has been a common practice. Remember, Shamir and Paris had a rotate right. uh, prime ministership. We've had other instances where you had on very close votes and very, you know, close majorities or non majorities. I mean, right. um, that this kind of horse trading goes on. And the difference also now is that everything is public. Right. It used to be this stuff used to go on, you know, in smoke filled rooms like in America where they would decide, you know, what the candidate was. Now everything is exposed and, and, uh,
0: Every moment every moment of the negotiations are being tweeted out, basically.
1: You know what? That's a good point. I not even about the Internet. I was just talking about how aggressive the media is generally in covering things. But you're right. It's also the, the degree to which the
0: people secrets yeah i mean no I, I mean we knew shaquette would be a minister of justice before she did <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's it's amazing i'll tell you and I, i'm obviously i'm exaggerating but you get my point um And I I should have thought of it. It's so obvious. I I should have thought of that as I was asking the question that, you know, things are so tight now that obviously negotiations are going to be much, much crazier. We've seen this with local state legislatures. You know, those that, you know, have one or two people that, you know, can affect the direction, the political direction that a body of government can go in, they hold a tremendous amount of power. Who, Who breaks this stronghold? Who breaks this. You know, the, 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 this this craziness, I, I guess, until the numbers really move one way or the other, it'll never be broken.
1: And, and every government pledges reform of the electoral system because everybody knows that it doesn't work well. But nobody will do it when it jeopardizes their vested interest. Right. The other thing I think now is that it's become so personal in the relationships. You know, it's not about uh, Baitoudi and Likud. It's about Netanyahu's relationship with Bennett. It's about everybody's personal relationships as opposed to even differences over fundamental issues or, or important uh, uh, policies. And I think that that too affects uh, the way the negotiations go now.
0: I hate to say it, and I'm sure Bibi would hate to hear it, but it might have been better for the Israeli people if there was a real coalition or unity government formed, even if it meant you know, road trading prime ministers or some other drastic measure like that.
1: Well, in terms of the United States government, I can assure you that that's something that they would prefer. Right. In terms of, it <laughs> doesn't make it good or bad, but in terms, and, and, you know, how the media would have portrayed it as a centrist, you know, government. Right. Government that includes the center. So this is going to be portrayed, of course, as a right-wing, you know, uh, religious
0: government. Yeah. Uh, interesting. You know, we, we know what, uh, we know what, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, deadlock. You know, gridlock. We know what political gridlock is. We're very familiar with it in this country. Washington is referred to. It's practically the nickname of Washington at this point. And, and it just seems like, it just seems based on these negotiations that it, it's going to be so tenuous. We're going to be speaking every week about the potential downfall of the Israeli government.
1: The one thing that isn't his advantage is that people do not want another election. People are tired of it. You raised it earlier. The question that people are asking is: So why did he go to elections? That he has a weaker government now than he had before. Was the timing wrong? Was it uh, was the decision wrong? And did he waste the opportunity given the majority that he came out with the thirty votes at the time? Uh, You know, but it's very easy to second guess, and it's very easy to sit on the sidelines. And make assumptions when, when you're there on the front line, having to make these decisions, it's yeah. much tougher.
0: He may have outsmarted himself, like the Yankees did. You know, the Yankees thought the fans would all hate A. Rod, and look what happened. Everybody's in love with him now. So you know, you just miscalculate.
1: A little different scale. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM Dial Broadcasting Live. From the Sony and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm appreciating my Major League Baseball references. So, um... Alright, start from the beginning, uh, with, with the episode in Texas. I, it, I, I don't know. I understand the value of freedom of speech and the, uh, and the importance of getting out there and, uh, and defending it and making a point, et cetera. Uh, with all that in mind, tell us what you thought of the nature of the event and then update us whether in fact any international terrorist groups were behind the shooting down there.
1: Well, on the likelihood of a grouping behind it, uh, that there always are at least tenuous relationships, if not direct involvement in training and inspiration and education and motivation. But I don't believe that here that al-Qaeda's uh, claim is credible or the other claims that IS's claims it rather is credible. Uh, it's something that we will find out. They, they clearly had the literature. They had a lot of other material there in their apartments. We have to hear what the reports really uh, say about it, um, about the event itself. One of the problems with this is is that you, you demean the significance of the issue that they are are highlighting, which means which is freedom of speech, right. uh, it, it, which is demanded for everyone, but not when it involves uh, you know Islam or pictures of Muhammad. But frankly, cartoon contests are not the way to do it I understand why some people see it as provocation others see it other ways I mean it should be able to take place it shouldn't be a threat they should be able to do it like everybody else you know finds ways to give expression you remember in New York we had that uh, art display where yep. the mayor and others came out against it
0: yeah but uh, yet because, defended the right
1: because it was offensive and right. because it depicted uh, religion, their religious leader uh, um, in, in a demeaning way right I think there has to be more sensitivity and we have to think about where you draw the line does it does it backfire on us and and in fact cause a, a reverse reaction uh, to it and you see the coverage in the media though that it's it's very mixed the principle should be inviolate and that is that the same standards apply to everybody and the fact that that they intimidate uh, people from you know, depictions of Muhammad or, or things like that, as, as was the case with Charlie in, in uh, France. Right. But it, it, you have to, as I say, you say you have to think about when is it appropriate and what is the most appropriate way to do
0: it. All right. An appropriate method. We, we all agree with the principle, but it's got to be done with an appropriate method. I mean, here, I would assume that, you know, the people involved were, were, were looking to shake things up, so to speak. You'd have to think that, right? Of course. Yeah, and, the, and it did. And, well, it did. That end, because, because they have the they have the greatest accomplice. They have the, the the media going nuts about it.
1: Yes, but we saw with the you know subway signs, and then you have the counter signs, and then the it calls the port authority now cancels all signs.
0: Right.
1: I don't know what the and that gain is. If if the other side does it, I think absolutely it is appropriate then to respond kind and make sure that the standards are universally
0: applied. Right. Uh, Yesterday there was a vote in Congress that dealt with Iran. Could you explain this one to me, please? Uh,
1: Yeah, sort of. We've talked about it for a long time, but now the reality, it was a a very strong vote. Uh, It now goes to the House to to
0: approve. So this was the Senate approving, Senate. approving the bill to review the Iran nuclear deal.
1: Yes, and what it does, it says that they essentially have the power to review the deal within 30 days of, uh, uh, of the president signing it. But we've heard many disturbing things uh, in the last few days, which really not only undermine the legislation, but it's intent uh, when Jack Lew, the Secretary of Treasury, said the president uh, you know, is going to use his authority and act. And they're making a distinction between lifting the sanctions, meaning suspending them, Versus canceling them. He said canceling them only Congress can do. Lifting them is within the purview of the president's powers. This is, it should be seen by Congress as an attempt not only to, to end run it, but to negate the impact of the legislation, which said, look, you have three branches. He's not making it a treaty which would automatically require two thirds of the Senate's approval. He's saying it's an agreement, an executive agreement, which does not require presidential approval. Other presidents have done it too. But something of such magnitude, where overwhelmingly the American people, even in polls in the days, show overwhelmingly distrust. Iran, they distrust the deal. They don't like it. They're, they're suspect of it. That the that to undermine the role of, of, of the Senate. And frankly, I think uh, Menendez is uh, stepping down as a vice chairman uh, hurt the process. Yep. Uh, um, I think the intent on the part of most uh, of the most of the members of the Senate was good and. Uh, you know, there were there were many amendments that were proposed, but the feeling was that that would uh, sink the bill altogether. So it is a, a tool for Congress now. It is uh, um, better than not having it. The question is how effective it will be. We'll only know once it's tested.
0: And what about the House? When does that happen?
1: Uh, hopefully in the next days, a week or so, it should be. They're, they're talking about the vote on it. And. It will pass there.
0: So it will pass there. And the well,
1: because you have no opposition. The president supports it, the you know, administration supports it. And, again, because it doesn't impinge in his view on, on presidential prerogative. You know, this is always the argument. We've had it many, many times. Going back to Jackson Vanek, I remember about, you know, presidential prerogative and foreign affairs, and you can't, uh, it has to be inviolate, et cetera.
0: Jackson Vanek was... Uh... Ended up be, ended up needing what presidential approval? Both. What, what do you mean? No, it
1: was Congress who initiated. Right, Jackson, if you remember. but it, it dealt with imposing sanctions and restrictions on on Russia, and Nixon was was against it at the time, and the argument they made is that foreign policy should not be made by the Senate, President, that they have the right to to approve, disapprove. Uh, but I'm citing it as one of I can I remember many times when we had issues involving Israel, involving other countries where uh, presidents, you know, jealously
0: protect their their prerogatives. Right. Um, So what's the latest of the negotiations? We know about the June deadline, and uh, we saw Secretary Kerry this week was pretty outspoken about the hopes for a real deal. Is there anything new in the last couple of weeks?
1: Well, the fact that he's traveling in Africa um, and not at the negotiating table, though there are others, obviously, who continue, but look at the statements this week again by Khamenei, and this—I know people may be tired of hearing it—but to me, it, it is inexplicable that the Khamenei can say the America we we're ready for war with America. We'll take him on, the leader of the IRGC. You know, America's afraid their tackles We're going to, we would beat them. They—they they released finally the Mers ship, which they claim was a, a financial uh, claim against the Mers. Uh, shipping line going back 10 years. But America now has to escort American-British shipping through the Straits of Hormuz. And we're negotiating with them. They're threatening our shipping. They, they, they seize a ship under American protection. They can make all of these horrendous, threatening statements and work together with other parties against us. And we've seen even a bit of a rapprochement with uh, Turkey And uh, other countries working together. The Saudi King today, uh, yesterday, came out very strongly, warning against the danger uh, of Iran. Obviously, the events in Yemen are at the forefront, and we see that that confrontation continues. And and the uh, Iranians have made more threatening statements about it. But so far, uh, the Saudis and their allies did what what you do, and that is you go ahead, you bomb, and you take the steps necessary, whether how effective they are. what well, the outcome will be I think it's right now a little hard to predict but the the fact is that those actions have made a difference there and, and the Houthis have been uh, have been stopped and we stopped the you know the resupply by that convoy of Iranian ships who turned back.
0: Is, is it safe to say, is it safe to say that Saudi leadership is disappointed in President Obama and Secretary Kerry at this point?
1: Well the previous king was and this new king uh, has expressed it. Uh, I think we have to look closely at the moves he's making. And something I did discuss before it happened about the uh, shifting of the, the new crown prince, which is his uh, right. his son, uh, uh, who's the deputy crown prince. The crown prince, he switched from uh, Mugren to Naive. All these things have real consequences. This guy is much more conservative. He's, he's released, again, the religious police. He's taken other steps. Uh, which I think we have to be uh, a little wary of, especially the new the, or reestablished relations with Turkey, where they're working together in Syria, whether it's just a, ma- a marriage of convenience for the moment or not, we will have to see. Um, and even with Qatar, by the way, involved in that as well. Uh, and, you know, Qatar and Saudi Arabia hate each other and, and, and have uh, been at odds for a long time. So I, I, I think people have to be a little careful in rushing to judgment about how beneficial these changes are and and what it will mean long term. Because uh, as you know, a, a, a alliances are very temporary. Friends are very temporary, and all of these things can be turned against other parties in the Middle East.
0: I want to turn for a second We with some some really good questions on the NSN app, which I, I didn't even solicit, but people are are writing in. Does the 61-seat coalition weaken Netanyahu to the point where it will affect his ability to hit Iran? Usually when it gets to things like that, there's a lot more unity and a, a lot more togetherness, right, Malcolm?
1: Number one is the question of capacity. I do believe they have the capacity, and I think that they have the plans to do it. I think they would find support. In Israel and outside, I think this is a unifying issue. Uh, Herzog and others have said that they stand on this issue together with uh, Netanyahu. It is a consensus issue in Israel, uh, certainly to fight Iran and to oppose it, and I think if necessary to take the action to defend Israel.
0: Someone writes about the Jewish leadership meeting that you and I spoke about last week with the President of the United States, and that there's an article that was printed about the uh, Pollard issue not being brought up. Malcolm, am I right or not? that there's no major Jewish leadership meeting, at least the ones that you coordinate, where the name Pollard does not come up?
1: First of all, we did raise it, not in the meeting with the president. That's what I figured. Immediately, in the, I figured. in the setting there with his people before and after, and in meetings I had earlier in that week, we raised it all the time. Um, at this meeting, obviously, we were in a very intense exchange about Iran and about Israel, and frankly, the president had a lead. Uh, it is an issue always on our agenda, and uh, I am more frustrated than any of your listeners because all the time we put in and all the effort, and and the fact that this man is suffering after thirty years—it's inexplicable, it's inexcusable. And I tell people all the time, if they have an idea of what we can do, we will do it. But we—we right. we have to, the, the idea that it didn't come up in the meeting. There were, we there were other issues also right. that we wanted to raise it. We couldn't because it was very intense. And until you sit there and you know that you, you, you're dealing with an issue of, of the magnitude of Iran or the future of the Israel relationship, and the president needs to get the message. He knows where we stand on, on Pollard. He needs to hear it all the time, and we have to reiterate it and, and make demands and continue to support
0: but, and you'd like to know when the last time that the people who are asking us about this have written or called about Pollard.
1: That's for sure.
0: Um, what's the rumor that you were in Argentina this week?
1: I, I came back yesterday morning. I was in Argentina for a day and a half because the, the deterioration of the situation there. It is frankly, uh, you know, I deal with a lot of these issues all the time, and I had some idea of what to anticipate. I was not prepared for what we found Fear. intimidation of the Jewish community, that, uh, and unlike Europe, where it starts from the people up and and officials, the Prime Minister of France, Foreign Minister, others, speak out against anti-Semitism, here it's emanating from the President and the Foreign Minister and and leaders that Jewish leaders are are now subject to a lawsuit brought by men renowned to be an anti-Semite, charging them with treason. And people are being named, including by the president's office. They talk about this conspiracy between the leaders of the Amiyadaya, Daya, which are the central bodies, with the vulture capitalists in, in New York and the, the uh, uh, other leaders, and, and it, it is unbelievable. And people told me we, we met, had maybe 15 meetings in that day and a half uh, with the legislators and others. Uh, and, of course, all of the leadership of the community. They told me they used to walk on the street. You know, it's not a small community. There are two to 300,000 Jews in, in, in Argentina. Nobody knows the exact number, it seems. And, and now they say they get harassed because this message spreads. And, and you know that words made lead to acts of hate. When it comes from the president and the, and the, the foreign minister who's, who resigned from the Jewish community in a public repudiation, a man who, who, whose father we all say demonstrated for, Hector Timmerman, for those who remember. Um, it, it is simply outrageous. And, and uh, the, the fear w- was so evident, and the concern but from non-Jews as well, about what the implications of the direction this is taken. And they're in the middle of an election campaign, so we had to be careful not to become part of the election and, and let them use uh, our visit against it. It got a lot of coverage, and hopefully it's a bit of an insurance policy. What do they, offici-
0: they officially say about the the murder, at least it looks like a murder, of the prosecutor?
1: Well, there's hardly anybody we met who doesn't believe it was a murder. Uh, they are trying to demean him and diminish him. There's all sorts of rumors that constantly come out, coming from official, quote, uh, or unofficial uh, sources, um, but clearly leaked by them. Everything here was so botched up. One person described the circus, as they put it in his room where he died, right after his death. People were taking things, he touched things, everything has been done wrong. And right now, his investigation appears to be on hold. And because he may have gotten too close to to some of the sources of the problems, and, you know, he was to testify that date before the Senate, uh, and with allegations against the Prime Minister, the President and the Foreign Minister, the very people I mentioned, uh, and their involvement with this memo, um, memorandum of understanding with Iran, that gets a lot of things. And, and the other thing is about what well, we've been discussing, the expansive role of Iran in Argentina and all over South America. And here you had a, a proposed deal, and I think there's going to be a major article coming out that people should look for in a very prestigious uh, magazine. Uh, detailing some of the information about coming from former ministers who now live elsewhere, our uh, Venezuelan ministers, who were aware of the deal, where Iran wanted the charges against their ministers, and, you know, Galiati and others, dropped in regard to the bombing, and, uh, and nuclear information in exchange for them giving money. And there are allegations that significant amounts of money were paid by Iran for uh, Kushner's uh, the earlier presidential campaign. Hmm. So it is a real mess, and it's a very complicated and, and difficult issue, and frankly, people are beginning to get frustrated, do not believe uh, they will come to a conclusion. And after 21 years, no one has been charged in the bombings that took so many lives at the Israeli embassy in 1994 at the, the Jewish Community Center.
0: Unbelievable. Anybody talking about Aliyah in the community?
1: There is a, a Uh It's not something that people talk about as openly. Uh, I do think that this is that people are in shock right now and do not know how to react to, to this uh, circumstance. And again, it's not uh, so much street uh, anti-Semitism and, and physical violence. But as somebody said to me, a leader, one of the leaders said, "We're between updating your passport
0: and physical violence." Unbelievable. They're more willing to speak openly about it in Europe, you're saying, in in terms of the community. About About
1: Aliyah, uh, it's, but but there has always been an Aliyah from Argentina. There was in an earlier period, if you remember, when people were disappearing, etc., if you remember the earlier history, Um, and then some went back, some stayed. Uh, You know, Argentina community, as I said, is very large and well-established. A lot of institutions, but I think the the uh, the atmosphere has dramatically changed in a short period of time.
0: I spoke Wednesday with the only uh, member of the current Knesset of Ethiopian descent and he said that the protests and demonstrations in light of the uh, soldier being beaten by police uh, in israel i'm talking about Israel now, not anywhere <laughs> not the cities we're used to here that go through this um, uh, that, that uh, the peace that the demonstrations were peaceful and that they were uh, Uh, that they spun out of control because of outside agitators, so to speak. Is that what you've been told and what you've discovered about the uh, protests by the Ethiopian community in Israel?
1: Well, the Ethiopians have generally have been uh, always peaceful. There have been demonstrations earlier, you know, or increased aliyah for for people from uh, bringing people. Their relatives are left behind in Ethiopia.
0: I didn't realize there's an issue about Jewish descent, and that's, that's holding it up. That's what he explained to us, that there's a major debate about, not debate, but they're trying to get past this issue of so many people in Israel in leadership roles who claim that the people who are still there may not be Jewish.
1: This is a long debate. It's not new. Uh, and supposedly all of those who could demonstrate, you know, that in fact they would choose, although many converted under force and they were and came back to the, to the Jewish people. Right. Uh, it's a separate issue. It's not the issue that here it's. It, it, it's, a, I think, an explosion of frustration uh, larger than just the issue of the one soldier um, uh, that uh, gave rise to this. But we know that there are outside agitators who get involved in these demonstrations, and uh, not just the, the Ethiopians because it serves a political purpose, because they want to ratchet it up. And in and the, a and the larger picture, not necessarily related to these demonstrations, the, the, the reports keep coming out about how the European money going to those who who demonstrate, who agitate, who promote BDS, who do other things, uh, money coming from other sources, uh, which uh, to people who, whose goal is to instigate and to disrupt society. There are legitimate reasons for protests. I think the Ethiopians probably have a lot of frustrations and, and uh, claims, and that should be uh, dealt with. Uh, so, uh, so does every group in Israel that's Part of the nature of Israel, everybody has a has a problem. Some are more serious and more real. And and look, they came from their very difficult circumstances. There are great success stories. I think overall, you took people from the Middle Ages and put them in the 21st century. Uh, many have served with distinction in the army. They served uh, are getting elected to the Knesset, to, to other positions of importance. You know, it's a process. Um, you know, the question of the Aliyah is a very sensitive one, because every time uh, many some of these, as you, you mentioned, claim that, you know, each time we're told that it's another 2,000 and that finishes it. And then, of course, there are 2,000 more and 2,000 more, and people want to leave Ethiopia. Many of them live as Jews in Ethiopia now, in camps and in other places, and they're saying, look, these people put on filling every day, they, they davened, Others are saying, well, they do that because they know that that's the way to get recognized and, and come to Israel. Yeah. I think it's it's cynical. I, we will protest it for the freedom of Ethiopian Jews. Um, and I hope that the, the, at least the grievances should be studied and where possible addressed. And the immigration issue is a very sensitive one.
0: Which story made you happier this week? Uh, Israel ignoring Jimmy Carter or the fact that Al Jazeera is not making inroads in the U.S.?
1: Well, both were pleasant to hear in, the, <laughs> you know, in a difficult week, but the, uh, I think that the Israeli government absolutely made the right choice. It, it, it is a, a, a statement that some people will say, well, you don't uh, ignore Pence. Yes, you do. And somebody who has made the outrageous statements, it's not because you keep him of anything. He's not coming to meet Israeli leaders in order to learn more. He's a closed-minded man. He, is, he has repeated his charges in book after book and speech after speech. So I do believe that uh, that the decision was right, and Al Jazeera it was largely predictable. I mean, with them, in the very beginning, they came to me and they wanted us to hire them. They wanted to have a relationship with the Jewish community. And I said, you do it by your performance. Don't come to us now and, and tell us promises. And the fact is that it, it, it's not like other parts of the world. It just doesn't resonate with the American people.
0: All right, I wonder if there be... though
1: sometimes their coverage is actually quite interesting because they have a lot of people on the ground they have a lot of money to keep still keep reporters when most of news agencies you know rely on the stringers or or wire services
0: right, and they have their own independent people. Well, independence the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, alright, for now on, he'll be Dr. Malcolm Honeline, at least for the next few days. What, what's your opening line, by the way? You always have a great joke or some cute line when you get up to speak as you accept your honorary doctorate from Temple University. Give us a sneak preview as to what you might say.
1: Uh, I will report it afterwards. <laughs> and, uh, I did already give one speech yesterday. Ooh. And, uh,
0: Was there a good joke in that one?
1: Uh, of course. But, the, you know, the, the the message as you say, you can't go home. You can, and, and there is a significance uh, to it. Temple University played a very important role at the time when I went to have a very large Jewish population. It's become much more expansive now, um, and, the you know, the the founder called the place Acres of Diamonds. <laughs> now it looks like miles of diamonds. The university stretches all the way up Broad Street, it's building after building after building of diamonds. Uh, uh, various schools and, and parts of the, of the university.
0: I'm asking you for comedy and you're getting nostalgic on me? Oh,
1: no, I'm not being nostalgic. <laughs> that was a joke.
0: <laughs> I want to know what the opening line is. it has got to be a good one, especially after what you just said. Spending so much time there and meaning so much to you. There's got to be I something didn't
1: say, I, I, I didn't say spend much time. I went to school there.
0: What do I, uh, I guarantee you I won't tweet it out until after your speech? Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well there you have it folks uh, Malcolm homeline becomes dr Malcolm homeline at least for a morning at Temple University you know, it
1: happened twice before and it, nobody ever called me doctor and I never had to be
0: called to... yeah that that's what frustrated nice me recognition and I'm proud that's what frustrated me at the beginning of this conversation you've got three honorary doctorates. You gotta, you gotta figure out a way to get me at least one. There's gotta be, there's gotta be somebody. Maybe one of these local Jersey City colleges will do it. You know, in recognition, in recognition of the show, would not that be all that you have? All the attention you have brought to Jersey City, et cetera. Absolutely. Listen, I know you have a lot of issues to deal with. Could you put this at the top of the agenda, please? Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if, uh, we'll certainly try to
0: do so <laughs> Mazel Tov and have a wonderful Thanks. Shabbos there he is, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations thank God our cell phone line held up, or I should say his cell phone line held up not bad for a uh, on the road discussion weekly update, Friday 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM